Good afternoon. I'm Adam Scher, Vice President for Collections and Exhibitions, and I welcome you to your Virginia Museum of History and Culture. The VMHC acknowledges the Powhatan Confederacy and the Monacan Nation that inhabited the land where this museum now stands. We seek to honor that history and maintain thoughtful relationships with those indigenous people and all the tribes of Virginia. Their story is integral to our past, present, and future. We would also like to acknowledge the generosity of former trustee Ann Worrell, who endowed this lecture series in honor of former president and CEO, Dr. Charles Bryan. So now if you would take a moment to check your electronic devices, make sure that they're not turned on, uh, place them on silence, we would appreciate that very much. And uh, I'll let you know about a couple of upcoming programs. Uh, so this is a special day. Uh, we have, uh, this is the first in uh, what we're calling the Founding Fathers doubleheader. Uh, you get the, uh, the benefit of, uh, of Jefferson this morning or this afternoon and then uh, Washington this evening. So tonight at six, um, we'll have Robert Pierce Forbes here to talk about his book, The United States of Virginia, Jefferson's Invention of, uh, of America Through a Virginian Lens. So um, I hope some of you will have an opportunity to come back. Um, and then on Wednesday, October 19th at 530, uh, we're very pleased to have uh, the renowned Civil War historian Gary Gallagher with us uh, as part of the Hazel and Fulton Chauncey Lecture, who will be talking about Jubal Early's 1864 Shenandoah Valley campaign. And then also don't uh, forget that Virginia House is still available and accessible to you all. Uh, we're going to have an open house on October 30th from noon to four. Uh, that's a free event, uh, no registration is required. So we're very, very pleased to have uh, Phil Levy with us today to talk about uh, his book, The Permanent Resident. No figure in American history has generated more public interest or sustained more scholarly research around his various homes and habitations than George Washington. The Permanent Resident is the first book to bring together the principal archeological sites of Washington's life in one cover, revealing what they can say individually and collectively about Washington's life and career and how Americans have continued to invest these places with meaning. 200 years after his death, at the sites of his many abodes, Washington remains an inescapable presence. The permanent resident guides readers through the places where Washington lived and in which Americans have memorialized him, speaking to issues that have defined and challenged America from his time to our own. Philip Levy is professor of history at the University of South Florida and the author of George Washington, written on the land, nature, memory, myth, and landscape. And of course, is the author of the work that you're going to hear about this afternoon, The Permanent Resident, Excavations and Explorations of George Washington's Life. Please give a warm VMHC welcome to Phil Levy. Thanks for that introduction. Thank everyone for coming out on this gray day. I think it's still gray out, right? Um, thanks for being interested in this. Thank you also, Graham, for setting this up. I'm looking forward to talking with you all. I have a lot of slides, a lot of images to share with you, and a lot to say about this, obviously. I'm gonna hope I can get it all done in a short period of time. So I think we'll be okay. 
Um, I want to call attention to the covers as a little point of pride, but that's a painting of mine that they used for the cover of the book. Uh, and it's my first book cover that I painted. So I thought as I'm doing these talks, the painting that it's based on is also getting a little national tour. So it's out front by the table. So please take a moment and notice how bizarre the painting is. But uh, I sent them three different Washington portraits that I painted and they picked the strangest of all of them. So that's a, you know, that's good. I'm very happy with it. And I'm, I'm hoping I get to do more, uh, more, more uh, cover painting. So as you're working on your books, let me know, I can, I can come up with something fair price. Um, reasonable rates. So, um, so let's talk about Washington and his life and the places of his life. I come at this topic uh, years and years of work on this. My work began in this in the early 2000, 2002, working on George Washington's Berry Farm, uh, doing history and excavation there. I've written two books about that site and the way that site has resonated over time. And what this has done is changed my whole approach to how I do history. It's completely appended how I worked, how I was trained to work, and now it's a very different project. And new concerns sort of enter and sort of shift and, and force you to focus on different things than you might have imagined you were going to do. Uh, when we first started this project, I didn't know that the cherry tree was going to become a dominant force in my life, but it has been. I've written quite a bit about it. I have another essay coming out soon that looks at the cherry tree. There, there was one that sat at Ferry Farm until like 1958 or so when a storm knocked it down. And um, there are a lot of people who are convinced that it was the cherry tree. So it has its own sort of story and life to explore. Um, so I want to kind of bring you bring a couple of ideas into play before I get into some of the, the meat and potatoes of the sites and the places I want to talk about. I'm going to take you through four different places associated with Washington. I'm going to pass over Mount Vernon because that's the best known. I want to look at some of the ones that are a little less well known and that tease out some different things, some different aspects of the idea of historical reconstruction, recreation. I want to focus on that because from an archaeological standpoint, one of the biggest achievements you can do with an archaeology site is get enough data to be able to rebuild. And rebuilding is a, is a whole thing into itself. It's a really fascinating project, a fascinating set of issues about people interacting with the past. But it's extremely complicated and fraught with a variety of issues. So I want to focus on that because we're going to look at four different versions of reconstruction, four different issues that come into building one of these things so that we can look at things that come from the 18th century and things that come from later and how they interplay. So I want to give you some basic, uh, a basic conceptual framework to sort of think about this. So let me do a little theoretical stuff up front, get some, some terms defined to kind of make sense of the place, so to speak, that I'm operating in and I'm going to take you to, give you a different way to think about historical sites. So let's start with three different concepts. The past, I think, is a fairly straightforward concept, a thing we can understand. It doesn't exist. It, it's not tangible. You can't touch it. You can't go there. You can't visit it. It's over. It happened. It doesn't change because it doesn't exist. It just is in the past. It has happened. But it's not completely inaccessible to us. Obviously, we here have an interest in it. Many other people do. Everyone has an interest in their own past or their family's past to some extent or another. Um, and there are many different pathways that we take to get to the past, to get to understand the past. I'm going to look at two of them. The two, obviously, are history and memory. And I want to talk first about history, because history is a confusing term. You know, you'd think with the English language having as many words as it does, we would have a high degree of precision in our terminology, in our language. And in, in the end, we don't. We use the word history very sloppily. We use it to mean the past, in many cases. But it also really is better understood as an avenue, a process for understanding a past, the past, an ongoing discussion. So does history change? Of course it does, all the time. 
because as new historians and new people come in, new questions are asked, and we're talking about things differently. The past is out there, but history itself will always be changing because it's an ongoing written discussion. Change is a fluid element in what we call history, and it's a research-based project. It's always about data. It's always about bringing streams of data in. And as the, as the, the field has grown, more streams of data have entered it. Art history becomes really just history after a while. Historians work with art just as much as art historians do. Material culture is another space. Archaeology is a space. I'm putting it under this umbrella for the moment because it's research-based. So it's going to be about information, research, and changeability. New information, new angles, new questions will change what we understand, will change the scholarship and the consensus. Memory, on the other hand, is a completely different project. Memory is about freezing things in time. Now, many scholars have broken memory down into many subcomponents, which some are, some are better than others. Some, some of those breakdowns are better than others. We don't have to worry about that so much for now. But we can think of memory in contrast to history as being the unchanging. Memory is the things we know in our bones, the things we get from our parents, the things we get from our family, our traditions, what some might call heritage. Dave Lowenthal writes about this, the, what, what we think of as heritage, the received. Memories Project is about fighting change. It's about continuity. It's about keeping things locked. So the two are very different. It's very important that we not value judge them one better than the other. Both play roles and they're implicated in one another. This is sort of a, a complicated point, but I'll just say it and move on from it. But the things I'm going to show you demonstrate the degree to which these things are implicated in one another. It is memory, that concern, that interest, that familial, that might drive someone to do history. Likewise, the findings of history inform what people practicing memory are doing. So these things become intertwined. The one is implicated in the other. And recent scholarship, people are thinking more about the way they interact rather than trying to sort of separate them and it, it, it act as if one is better than the other. So when we talk about memory and history coming together, historical sites are perfect places for that. Because the memory project is that emotional passion. It's the people dressing up in the costume and sort of wanting to wanting to touch something and getting an imaginative emotional experience. Whereas the history is the thing that goes into telling you what the clothes would look like in the first place. So there's an interplay. This is one of the sites we're going to talk about. There are four that I want to walk through. Each are different forms of reconstruction. So we're looking at, for, as we go from the upper left, the George Washington Birthplace Memorial House in Westmoreland County, Virginia. To the right of that is the George Washington home or the Washington home at Ferry Farm outside of Fredericksburg. At the bottom left is the one you are least likely to have seen, which is the Bush Hill House, sometimes called the Washington House in Barbados, outside of Bridgetown and Barbados. And at the bottom right, some of you might recognize, is the President's House in Philadelphia. So each of these are a version of rebuilt. So I want to go through some different forms of rebuilding and different the way each of these play out different models of rebuilding. And I want to say one thing about Washington in this. Uh, Washington, as, as the book talks about, is, you know, it's an important point to keep in mind. One of the things that has kept me working on Washington for so many projects is that I, I, I'll tell students when we talk about this, that there is there is no issue in American history that doesn't have some Washington angle. Washington plays a role in absolutely everything. He's invoked in almost every discussion. He's brought up in almost every debate. There's always some way that someone is invoking Washington in a discussion. So Washington as an 18th century figure is fascinating. But for me, Washington as this figure of memory, this figure that can be invoked over and over again, is equally fascinating. And my work has been very interested in the interplay between the two, how they work sort of together. And as a result, Washington sites are sort of perfect for this kind of 
game of memory, uh, memory and history. And reconstruction then plays a plays a role in this. So let's talk about the birthplace site. The birthplace site's been foremost in my mind this summer because we just did a new project there, which I'll I'll end this little section by talking about briefly. So Washington's born 1732. Um, he was born on February 11th, as you all know. We celebrate it now on February February 22nd, but that's because of a calendar change during his life. In his life, he always thought of his birthday as being February 11th. Uh, so, but he's born he's born in Westmoreland County uh, in a home that was owned by his father, probably built by his father. Uh, and then the family left by the time he was three, and he went back on occasion, but not often. Um, it wasn't really a central part of his life. It's there, but it's not central. He moved around quite a bit. And for the birthplace site, he sort of falls out after a while. He sort of becomes less important a figure, although his shadow, the, the fact of his birth, is what gets the land preserved in the first place. When, it, when we view the site outside of the commemorative side, the remembering Washington and his birth, and say, well, what do we have source-wise? It gets very thin. We have a few documents from Augustine Washington about the building of the home, but not much, not much to go on. And we have, we start to have maps. There's one map from 1810, but it's in private hands, uh, Washington descendants, a nice map, but I don't use it too often. This is one that the Park Service owns, uh, done by Samuel Lampkin, who's a local surveyor. And what's happening is George Corbin Washington, Washington's great grandnephew, um, is, uh, sorry, grandnephew, is in the process of selling the land uh, in 1813, uh, sort of ending the family tie with this piece of land that had begun in 1660, 1661. Uh, the Washingtons at this point sort of leave the land. And he has the land surveyed as part of the sale. And if you, I have my pointer, I guess I can use, yes, this is gonna, uh, I'm not sure if the mouse works. No, it doesn't. Okay, so, oh, sorry, let's use this. So right here is where the birthplace was. So Washington was born up on this little neck of land. This, is, this map refers to this area right there, it's hard to see, as, as Good Point. Uh, later it'll be called Burnt House Point, but that's because of a memory project. But it's known as Good Point at the time. So you'll notice that it doesn't make any indication at all as to uh, where Washington was born. The local folks are just not that concerned about that. That's just not what they're thinking about. This is land and they're moving it on. But this is what we have. But what happens by 1815 is a commemorative process kicks in. The War of 1812 plays an enormous role in this, and I've come to see the uh, rechristening, the sort of dedication by uh, George Washington Park Custis, the adopted grandson of, of the president, um, as a kind of, and he, his writing suggests this, that it's a kind of rededication of the nation by going back to the site of Washington's birth in 1815 after British warships had gone up the river and had burned the capital, by putting a stone marking the birth of Washington, it's an attempt to sort of give the nation a new birth. But the problem is nobody knows exactly, they didn't know exactly where to put the stone. There were ruins on the ground as the, as the Charles Perkins image shows, but there wasn't a lot of, wasn't a lot of local knowledge. They have a sense of where, uh, where the house was, but there isn't any great detail. So for the next 60 years, the discussion had been about where the stone was. The, the assumption is that Park Custis got it right, so wherever he put the stone, that's the right place. The farmers are moving the stones around because they're in the way when they try to plow fields. So the stone gets lost. There's a memory that there were fig trees near the stone, so now where are the fig trees? The fig trees are now the indication that this is Washington's home. So we get lost really quickly. It, we lose a connection to what's in the ground. But there was archeology. span uh, The Army Corps of Engineers under the uh, did this project in, in the 95, 96. Uh, the project was to set the uh, to set a memorial there. That's why there's this weird square there, this position of monument. But they did locate a foundation. Now, having spent a lot of time at the site, their foundation's all over the place. There's a long period of habitation here, so there are 18th century foundations, even 17th century everywhere. 
But they set up this monument by the this is set by the federal government as dedicating the site of Washington's birth by the turn of the century. And they think they have it. And then Josephine Wilwright Rust enters the story. She pulls together something called the Wakefield National Memorial Association. A word about the word Wakefield. I'm I'm sort of uh, hoping it gets banished, but uh, it, it, it's a it's a tricky fight or, or recontextualized. There had been a long tradition in the 20th century of referring to the place as Wakefield. Uh, the name appears in the 1760s. It, um, Augustan Washington, it, it doesn't mean anything to them. They don't name their home. That generation of Washingtons did not name their homes. It's just the home, the home place. Um, but the name comes up, it had been attributed to Augustan Washington Jr., George's older brother. But uh, my research in the records shows that he died before that name was in use. And it's actually Anne Islet Washington who uses that name the most. And she lived there, his widow, who lived there for about 10 years, uses that name extensively in her correspondences. And then when she died, the name vanished. So Wakefield is really her name. So if you want to use it, which if we do, that's fine. We need to recognize that it's hers, that it isn't, it doesn't come from Augustine Washington Jr. And it has a very short life. It's pegged very tightly to her. But they love the name Wakefield and they use the name Wakefield all the time. So she creates, Josephine Wilwright Rust, creates this commemorative group and they pull together money and they want to build a commemorative home. Now they have that archeology, span they have that site, but that site is really quite sketchy. It's hard to understand and it's very small. But she does have a house in her mind. And this is her grandmother's home in Richmond County. And uh, sorry, in King George County. And, um, she spent time here as a child. She has very fond childhood memories of it. And this is her inspiration for, uh, for building a washing home. She also, her, her architects also look at places like Gunston Hall and, and draw on that. And what they build is a very nice replica of a very elite mid 18th century gentry home made in brick. Notice that Twyford is, is clabbered, but they go for brick in this because surely George would have been born in an elegant brick home. So it's those assumptions. It's that sort of sense of a gentry home. What we want is a gentry home. And I know some gentry homes, let's make a copy of a gentry home. It sits on top of where there was an archeology span site. Good, good, it's good enough, right? There was, there was a building there. This is the building we want to build. We got it. So it uses the language of research, this project. We did some archeology, span we looked at some buildings, but it, it's all filtered through this sort of memory haze, this, this knowledge that we have to build something of a certain level of elegance, otherwise we're not really doing honor the way we're supposed to. That desire to do honor, to honor the ancestor, is really the driving force, not the research behind it. And that makes this very powerfully a memory project. So they build this, as you can see, the archeology, span the, the drawing from the 1930s, um, these things don't line up. That building, that foundation does not make sense when you put this building on top of it. And why don't we go back and look at it, you might say. Well, the problem is that they destroyed the 18th century foundation in building the memorial house. And at the time, as you can see from, uh, from Charles Patterson, there were people who objected, people who understood that destroying an 18th century foundation was, uh, was a bad thing. So whether they see it in a sort of... Uh, steepling their fingers in a dastardly fashion way or not, they are destroying the evidence that could argue against their building. Um, and as a result, all we have are some drawings. And I don't even think we have a good photograph of it. Um, so there was a building there, but it's hard to tell exactly what it is. When you look at it in the context of its landscape, you can see it over here, right there. You can see it's fairly small. It's on a nice orientation. The water's over there, a little odd. There's another building feature there. You can see some of the trenches that they dug. This is a, a 1940 excavation map. There's a bit of a building there. That's a fireplace side, but we're not sure what the rest might be. There's a piece of a building there. 
But then in 1930, a little bit before this, they're excavating over in this area and they come of foundations. Now, the first foundations they found were the Washington home, immediately declared so to be because the stones and the fig trees and, and this is a good spot, the sun lands on this lightly, this is of course where they would have built a home. Well, they find another building and immediately there are people saying, oh no, this is the Washington home. So you end up for years with a battle between these two places. The consequence of that battle is this absurd name you see on the slide. In order to not offend the sentiments of the sentiments of the Wakefield Association, they didn't want to say that the Park Service who was doing this didn't want to say that this was the Washington Home. So it became known as Building X. Hopefully, we will dispel that name and and move on to something more solid, because this summer it's you know propitious time for this. This summer we re-excavated those foundations. They were excavated partly in 1930. They were traced out in 1930. Then in 1936. Uh, WPA workers came back and excavated the entire building. They did it in about a week, and it's they did not that bad a job given the context. There's enough of a record that I could go back in 2014 and create a report based on that record and make some assessments about what it looked like. Um, but we needed to see the building. We needed to see these features. And now it has been reopened. You can see just right there, might as well call attention to him, but uh, that's Willie Graham, one of the region's best well-known architectural historians and he and I've been working on this project he's done some amazing work he's got a vast body of knowledge to, to bring to bear on this and we are in the report that's going to emerge we're going to offer a new interpretation for this building you're gonna to have to wait for that because I'm not gonna tip the hand but um we understand this building now in a way that nobody has ever understood it since it stood and it's not what the story has been it's very different but I think we're going to be giving the park a very useful uh, very useful interpretation which will be based on data we will have changed the focus of this reconstruction interpretation. The old one is now, the Memorial House is called the Memorial House and the Park Service intentionally calls attention to the fact that it is not the Washington birth home, but it's built so beautifully. It's a great building. I mean, if somebody wants to, you know, give me it to live in, I'm gonna live in it. It's it's a nice building, but um, it, it still deceives people. It can't help but do it. It's meant to deceive. That's part of the project. It's meant for you to see it and have a, a sort of gut level reaction of its grandness and. The problem there, of course, is that it's deceiving you. So, but that is part of what it is. So let's shift gears and talk about Ferry Farm. This is the project that I've had the most to do with. This is the one that I took from soup to nuts. Um, when I got there in 2001, this is what it looked like. It was an empty field with a couple buildings, each representing a different phase of habitation. The building in the background on the, the white I've written about extensively in other work uh, is a, an 1870s farm building, an 1870s farm building that very quickly becomes understood as a George Washington building. Uh, it, it becomes imagined as an 18th century building and has a whole little commemorative energy around it that's, that's false, but very powerful. Um, the other buildings were built by uh, County Park, when the, when the uh, Stafford County Parks when they owned the when they owned the ground, so basically empty. Um, what the Washington family home there was gone. It was gone since eighteen. Or it's gone at least since eighteen thirty three. Um, but we do have some information that comes from the records before we get to the archaeology. We have an inventory, and as you do these inventories, uh, the possessions after someone passes away had to be counted for the purposes of distribution and taxation. And so county court officials would go through the house and record what they saw. And in many cases, though frustratingly, not all, they will go through and say what room things are listed in. They're wonderful documents. They're, they're fascinating and useful. They are not perfect because if there was nothing in the room, the room won't be mentioned. 
So you get sort of a minimum count of rooms, but there's always the possibility of, of rooms not discussed. But it gives you an idea. This happened to give us enough information that there could be a breakdown. Then this breakdown you see on the right of the slide comes actually from the 1930s. So they were fitting things into the into the home and doing a pretty good pretty good outline of what it might look like. But you can see that the spatial distribution. The landscape was empty, as I say, by 1833 when John Gatsby Chapman painted it. This painting is now at Mount Vernon, and you can go see it. Uh, when it came to Mount Vernon in 2016, David Morocco, who's the director of archaeology at Ferry Farm, uh, and I talked to Adam Irby, who's the curator at Mount Vernon. And we had long known about this painting. We'd never been able to see it because it was in a collection in New York where we couldn't get access to it. I'd driven up there and tried, and we couldn't do it. We wanted to see the back of the painting. We had long heard that there was a drawing on the back of the painting. And that's what we wanted to see. So Adam Irby got the painting out, and we got to look at the painting, and we turned it over, and there's nothing on the back. There wasn't anything there. But the thing that we thought was on the back did exist. It's just that it existed in a letter. When Chapman went to paint the home, he talked with a man named Tennant Mercer. Tennant Mercer was the son of Hugh Mercer, the Revolutionary War general who was killed at Princeton and who purchased Ferry Farm from George Washington. Um, Tennant Mercer had a memory of the Washington home. And he told this to uh, Chapman, who did a little sketch from memory. Well, I've done talks about this before. It's one of my favorite topics to play with because there's a lot of imagery. It's really great. But that image made its way around. Uh, Benson Lawson got a copy of it from Chapman and he wrote it into his books. So you can see it repeated again and again in art. It makes its way into Courier and Ives and it sort of calcifies as an icon of the Washington home. And if you if you look at them, they get kind of gets kind of smaller and smaller. It becomes more and more rustic through each of its iterations until um, you finally get this basically little cabin. And this becomes uh, you know the, the icon I had when we did the announcement of findings in 2008 after we had found the foundations of the home and National Geographic did a whole big thing and we were sort of, you know, got great national press around this, I started getting emails from people saying, I can help you. I know what the Washington home looked like. And they were great. I have a collection of these images that people sent. And one of them was from someone who said, my mother painted that house. She knew that house well enough that she could paint it. And he sent me a, a photograph of the painting. And you see where this is going, right? It's it's this. It's it's set on a different landscape, but it's this house. So the Courier and Ives image really fixed in people's minds. It became what people understood the building to be, to the point where people just thought it was it. The first time we get a real glimpse at it, though, is through the archaeology. And it's a wonderful site and a frustrating site. Um, uh, David Morocco says this site breaks people. It's, it's a difficult site. It's not just the rocks that break you. Um, it had been heavily used. There was a lot of activity, a lot of habitation in the same area. So in many ways, even though it's a rural site, because it's in the countryside, it's really more like an urban site because it has continued occupation on top of it. When we get to the president's house, like in, in Philadelphia, you'll see what I mean by urban occupation. Um, it, people continue to live in it and make changes. The X that you see sort of in the ground uh, to... Uh, uh, this is a Civil War trench. So uh, the Union soldiers who are sleeping on this ground finally realized that you needed to have a small trench up to kind of, you know, keep any keep bullets from you should anything happen. Nothing happens, but they built this trench here. Um, and it turns ever so slightly. They hit this rock, which is a, a certainly a piece of the Washington Home Foundation. They didn't know it, but there it was. They hit it, and there's a slight jog in the trench. It's like, you know, they're, they're digging away, and they hit that and go, right, that, that's more than my job's worth. I'm, I'm not... We're going to work around that thing. So that's sort of left in place. 
but uh, this is archaeology. We've left that. But there's that stone. And then there's this. Uh, anybody want to venture a guess as to what that is? Some of you might actually recognize these. It's one of my favorite objects on the site. I ended my uh, my 2013 book about the site um, talking about this thing. It's a, so I'm, it's not a quiz to see whether you read that book, but uh, um, it's a uh, it's a sewer line. So there's there's a home up there. You can't see it, uh, and there, that's the pipe. The pipe is gone. That's the sewer trench, and the trench ends in a sump, and that sump is in a cellar addition to the Washington home. Um, so that's that's what happens to these landscapes. But this is uh, this is the the main feature that we found. This is the original cellar of the Washington home. And that doorway, I'm going to show you something about that doorway shortly. But you can see a line of stones there, mostly removed. Stones get taken and reused on other sites. But a little bit of stone there that's a fireplace, stones here that are part of a fireplace, stones there that are far, part of a fireplace. There's a nice cellar there right in front of that fireplace. So we get, a, we get a little bit of what this building looked like. The cellar was an impressive thing. I'll show you more about it in a second. But it's a um, faced stone, extremely well laid. This was built by William Struther in the 1730, early 1730s, late, 17, late, late 1720s. He was a member of the House of Burgesses and um, built himself a very appropriate gentry home for the 1720s. And that's the one that Augustine Washington purchased. So the Washingtons didn't build this cellar, they, they purchased it. But uh, beautifully laid, just a, a marvelous piece of stonework. So if you look in this area more closely, you can see uh, the cellar. So there, or sorry, the um, fireplace there, and the beginning of a corner, and then a little bit of stones there. So we had to make sense out of this. It's not a lot to go on. This isn't a particularly uh, extensive floor plan, <laughs> but we're able to tell some details. We know, for example, the way homes work, that the cellar would be in the middle of the house, so there'd be a passage above the cellar. We know that the cellar had an external entrance. That's what that is. This is a much later. This is, uh, this is after the Washingtons are gone. This is built by tenants much later. So this is the original entryway into the cellar. Which So this is where the, the passage would be. So it'd have rooms on either side. And the footprints tell us something about where the, uh, um, where the fireplaces were, which tell us something about how the building's laid out. So what we did is worked with architectural historian Mark Wenger, who brought together a set of buildings that match the form. Now, there are patterns. And working with patterns is a very big deal when you're working with this kind of data. We found this place. It's called Linden Farm in Richmond County. And it is a ringer. It's almost exactly like the footprint that we see. Notice the offset, offset fireplace, how this would be a fireplace for two rooms. There'd be a fireplace there at an angle and a fireplace there at an angle. So you build two fireplaces in a single chimney. So the fireplace is in the corner of this room and in the corner of that room. It's very efficient, good use of bricks. But, uh, but there it is, and the roof sits on it. And this, is, this lines up perfectly. So as we started to do the reconstruction, this is what was taken into consideration. Now, the thing about the reconstruction at Ferry Farm is it is intended to be viewed as a reconstruction. So everything about it is museum, and it's self-consciously so. So anybody who goes there is told immediately that this is a reconstruction, this is a rebuild, it's based on data. There's no desire, no attempt to create any deception whatsoever. And in fact, I think we're all very proud of uh, the work that went into it, but also the complicated system that was used to preserve the archeological resource while building on top of it. And I have to say, when I first when when I first envisioned the rebuild, I assumed we would go 15 feet back and not, you know, sort of preserve the resource and go 15 feet back and not touch it. That's not what we did. We we built right on top of it. And let me show you a bit about that. Well, let me show you one more thing here. You can see the footprint of the fireplace right there. That's going to be one fireplace going into this room and another going into there. You'll notice that that's poured concrete. There's a platform that the fireplace is going to sit on and there's some stone there. We'll look at that in a second. Working with Raymond Kennedy, who's uh, 
the rock star stonemason, uh, the, the person who knows how to do this work better than anyone, has done more of it. You you see his work all over the place. If you go to historic sites in Maryland, if you go to Colonial Williamsburg, um, you see his work everywhere. He's he's the man. And so what Raymond and his team did uh, was we found a lot of Aquia stone for them, and they broke it up into blocks and did and set it. But you'll notice what we've done is this: there's poured concrete here, and then stone is put on the face of the poured concrete. And there's a little air down there. You can see it at the bottom. The poured concrete, stay with me, the poured concrete sits on top of two-inch steel rods that are about 40 feet long that are driven into the ground. And they're kind of torqued in. And the concrete is poured onto them. The end result is that the whole thing floats about two inches above the archaeology. So the archaeology is just under there, untouched, left, left intact, with this giant sealer above it. So the whole building just floats. It, it's sitting about two inches above uh, above the resource. So it's all preserved, all still there, no impact on it whatsoever. And uh, the one place where there's contact is the cellar. The cellar is visible from inside the building. And so this is treated as like the special connection zone. Uh, the dark stone is the original stone, and Raymond and his team finished it all the way up to the top. We, of course, wanted to make sure that the line between the stone was clear and present, because we want everybody, to, we want to be able to interpret it and say there is the original stone, and this is the this is the continuation. So everything about this place is designed to call attention to the act of rebuilding and and use it as a stage for interpretation. So this is what it ends up looking like from the other side. The paint is there. We use this color because we found evidence of that color. Although this is you know, it, even if we hadn't found evidence of this color, this is the color we would have guessed. This is the most common color for buildings in this period. Um, so there we go. And when you're inside. Uh, you're inside a space. That's the uh, that's the cellar door there. So tours will open that cellar door and look in and be able to see the original cellar and where it joins the reconstruction. Um, everything in the building is touchable. Every surface can be sat upon, laid upon. Um, plates fall and break every now and then, and we just sweep them out the door the way they would have in the 18th century. So it's it's a living space that way. Uh, all very hands on. All very self consciously designed. Um, to be to be a museum space. This is that this is that corner chimney I mentioned before. It looks you think it's going to be kind of odd when you see it from the outside, but when you see it inside, it, it makes perfect sense. It fits beautifully. So this is the uh, the main hall of the Washington home. Um, there is no further evidence to work with, right? There, there's a lot of guesswork in this. There has to be, but the guesswork is based on all the existing evidence. So all the furniture is reflected in an inventory. The uh, the archaeology is what informs the ceramics. We know some of the furniture that the Washingtons had because of the lists and the inventory, uh, and existing existing examples that have been copied and brought into the brought into the rooms. So what we have is a recreation. A recreation in which people can can do interpretive programming and people can be educated, but always with a, a, a with a, a conscious awareness that it's a reconstruction or a rebuild. Now let me share. There's David Maraca down here in the corner. There, some of you know Dave, and there he is. Um, this guy actually is tall. It's not just that Dave is short. Um, so this was one of the interesting problems that we had to solve. I'll show you these. Show you how you solve these problems. The the issue is that we had this. This is the cellar entrance reconstructed now. Uh, and we knew that the cellar entrance was where the hall would be because that's how Virginia buildings worked. So there had to be a way to get into the house. If you've got this entrance on the ground level here, you don't enter through the cellar and go up into the main room. That's not how these homes work. So how do you get in? Well, here's the answer, right? You obviously have to have some kind of stair set up. But how do you know that's this one? Well, we start looking around and we found many examples, but this is an example from Stratford Hall 
sort of nice high style example of exactly this kind of construction from exactly the period where you have a cellar entrance there and a main room entrance above, and in this case, extremely elaborate stairs taking you up. The Ferry Farm stairs are much humbler because it's a much smaller, more modest building, but the idea is basically the same. Is this exactly what it looked like? Of course, we can't know that. We, we don't have that information. But this is how that, what the archaeology is telling us is how this building had to have functioned. So that's, that's how data sort of informs what a rebuild looks like. Now, let's jump once more to a completely different set of problems. What you faced in Barbados was a building that had survived, but had undergone a very different life than it had originally begun. So Washington, as many of you know, visited Barbados in 1751. Um, he saw a number of things there. The scholarship on him, uh, the, the Barbadians writing the scholarship tend to want to locate uh, all of Washington's traits in Barbados. And I get that. I understand why they want to do that. There's certainly, Barbados certainly has an enormous impact on his life, more of an impact than I think most biographers understand. I think I said in I think I said in the book that, that most biographies do a sort of little hibiscus-scented tropical diversion for a few pages to talk about going to Barbados and, you know, catching a big, you know, what do they call it, a big dolphin, and uh, um, hating being at sea and getting smallpox and, you know, all, all the fun stuff one does in Barbados and, uh, in 1751. Um, and that's all true. That That's all real. But he also... Uh, the way I talk about it in the book is not that Barbados shows him things that set him in motion. For example, you could find people who would say, well, he saw British soldiers for the first time in Barbados, which is true. Um, you know, red uniforms, seasoned for the first time. But Washington's interest in the military went back to long before that. Um, he has a book about the Duke of Schomburg, who's a, a sort of 17th century action hero. And uh, Washington has that book when he's like 14 years old and, and you know, is, is trading it with a cousin. So he, we know that he's reading military tales of glory very young. So some of this stuff is earlier set. However, it is the first time he sees British troops. And he's also seeing forts at a level that he never saw before when he was there. I think there are several things that really resonate with him, one of which I'm going to write later on, so I won't go into it. But uh, um, there are several things that, that have an effect on him. And one of the things that's most interesting is land holding. Washington came from a land, came from a place where people owned, his, his class of people, the top 10% of wealthy people in Virginia, owned large quantities of land. Uh, his father, who had passed away about a decade before this, owned about 10,000 acres at the time of his death. George owns hundreds of acres when he goes to Barbados. Right? He's already, more than that, thousands at this point. He's, you know, he's already been acquiring land. He acquired land through, uh, through his father's will. They own hundreds and hundreds of acres, people of his class. That's, that's what they're used to. What he saw on Barbados, and he wrote about it in his, in his journal, which UVA did a recent new publication for that's a fabulous uh, edition. You should take a look at it. Um, what he sees are people who are staggeringly wealthy to his eye, people who have much more wealth through sugar than what he or anybody around him was able to get through tobacco, especially people who live on the northern neck of Virginia. If you're on the Rappahannock, tobacco is not going to produce the kind of wealth that it would produce on the York or the James. But it does produce some wealth. But these people have wealth that's well beyond anything that he's used to. And the largest land holding he sees is about 700 acres. He meets people who are wealthier than he is, who have 300 acres. And it... It, the way he writes about it in his journal, he's clearly processing this. Like this is, he just, this is not what he expected to see. He's equated wealth with, with vast acreage. Barbados, as you might imagine, is small. 
and the land goes into sugar, which is highly profitable. You don't need hundreds and hundreds of acres to be extremely wealthy. So he's hobnobbing with a, with a class of people who are wealthier than what he knows from home, but own less land. And that's one of the things that's absolutely in his head and sort of fascinates him. But there are other things as well um, that, that sort of shape him and affect him. One of the things that I talked about in the book that uh, I think is most important is that the British Empire becomes real to him in in visiting Barbados, and I'll give you one simple example from why. For why, there's a piece of uh, white salt clay stoneware that was uh, excavated at the Bushell site, the, the home that he rented. It's right in the period. It's 1750s ceramic, and although there were not a lot of the, the, the excavation did not yield a lot of materials, a very small excavation uh, done in 1999 by Colonial Williamsburg. Um, they did find some stuff, and one of the things they found were these fragments of white salt clay stoneware. Those fragments of white salt clay stoneware have a pattern on the edge that is exactly the same as what we found at Ferry Farm. And I, when I realized that, it gave me chills. That was, you know, nothing better demonstrates the reach of the British Empire than spending a month at sea and eating fish and watching sailors and getting seasick. And then after all that, you rent a house and you sit down and it's exactly the same dinner service. We are used to that because we live in a different iteration of consumerism than the 18th century had available. This is, this is remarkable. So the British empire becomes real. There's a, a sort of a solidification of the British empire in that simple act. And in some ways that's what artifacts can do for you. Um, but this is the land that he saw. This is looking southward um, from just behind Drax Hall, very famous site uh, in um, on Barbados that people visit. I uh, I went at it the wrong way. You're supposed to go to the front. I, I just took a dirt road up the back and ended up in, in the backyard. Um, this is it from the backyard. Most people don't see it there. And I was glad that I did because when the dog started barking, somebody came out and we ended up sitting on the porch and talking for about two hours. So it was, it was great. I, it was a great experience. It was wonderful. But this is, Barbados has the largest collection of 18th century homes. This is a 17th century home. There's still three or four 17th century buildings active in Barbados, but there are more 18th century buildings there than I think in the rest of the West Indies. It certainly has more than any other island. Um, so the landscape is dotted with 18th century buildings and many of them survive. In Bridgetown, in the city, there are fewer. This one is said to be an 18th century building. I've had people tell me it's 17th century. I look at it and think it's 19th century, but um, that doesn't mean that there isn't a core that's 18th century. But uh, but. It's very similar. The early 19th century is building not that differently from, from the previous one. But uh, this is the kind of townhome that people were living in in Barbados. And when Washington came to Barbados, he and his brother Lawrence started their residence there in a townhome. It was, it was owned by Gedney Clark, who's one of the wealthiest men in, one of the wealthiest men in the colony. This one is a 17th century. Uh, uh, this is a restored early 18th, late 17th century, early 18th century townhome. And this is exactly, we, we don't know the building. The building that Clark owned is gone. But um, this is the kind of building that Washington would have lived in, would have seen extensively when he was in, when he was in Bridgetown, when he stayed at first. He went out into the countryside and visited uh, other plantations. And one of the plantations he visited was this place. It's called Bell Plantation, one of Gedney Clark's outlying properties. It's today part of some industrial Plaza. There's. A, I've never seen anybody doing anything there. There's. There's like you know backhoes and stuff there. So it's not really clear what goes on there. But there's some kind of like construction rubble. Um, so something. Something's happening there. But I'm not sure what. The building is decrepit and and left alone. And you can, as I have done on occasions, literally just pull up and get out, start taking pictures. And if you want to, you can 
walk around inside and take pictures and reach down into the cellars and try to get photographs of the beams to see which ones are 19th century versus which one are 18th century. Nobody minds. Nobody's really paying any attention to you. But this is the inner core of that building. There's um, Bell has uh, a porch addition. You can see that that lower. Let me use the pointer here. This is all later. Right, but there and that's later. <laughs> so you can see almost nothing of 18th century here. But inside, there's an 18th century core. And when you go inside of it, there it is. So when you're inside this long rectangular space, I'm fairly certain that Washington was in this space. And let me give you one more detail about this. We know from the records that Washington uh, got smallpox while he was visiting the Clark household. Um, one of the daughters was ill with smallpox. He went and had dinner, and two days, three days later, he has smallpox. And he spends pretty much the whole month of November lying in bed um, sick. It's entirely possible that this is the room in which George Washington contracted smallpox. Um, there's no way to know that because it might have been in the it might have been in the building in town. It probably more likely was. But he did visit these buildings, and Clark owns this, so it's entirely possible. But before he contracted smallpox, he and his brother Lawrence rented a home from a guy named Captain Crofton in a part of Barbados that still is very powerfully associated with the British Empire, the Garrison Savannah. This area right here is about a mile outside of Bridgetown, which would be that way, overlooking Carlisle Bay with forts down on the river here. This has long, long colonial associations. Uh, it's still the parade ground for the Barbados military. Um, there are these great horse races there that you can go to. They're really wild steeplechase races. They're really fun. And half the island turns out. It's really quite a thing. Um, and uh, it, it's, uh, there are colonial buildings ringing it. So the, the archives isn't there. The archives is somewhere else. But the Barbados Museum, of, uh, Barbados Museum of History is there in an old colonial building. And there's still, so there still is this colonial echo. And so Washington, the, the home that Washington rented was right in that area, belonging to a captain of the army. So you've got a fort there. You've got garrisons up here. So he's right sort of in the center of the British army uh, habitation. And it continued to be through the 19th century, as long as the British were there, it continued to be part of the military sphere. This is the building, radically changed since Washington's day. And we're going to kind of undo some of that to better understand it, uh, to understand what's at stake here when you're dealing with uh, accumulation, right? how a building changes over time. Um, this is looking from the side. I like this view. It's such a confusing building. And in, in the short time I have, I couldn't possibly make you understand it. I read the report four times before I even began to understand this building. But, um, and, I've, and I've been confused by a lot of buildings. So, you know, this is, this is a confusing building. But this, this is the view that would have been the front in the 18th century. It was reoriented through rebuilding. And I'll, I'll take you through that. The first, or one of the first images we have of it is this that comes from uh, the uh, early, early 19th century. This is a, um, you can see it here. It's a small, very typical Barbadian uh, space with two rooms with a, with a central doorway. They don't use central passages here. And then rooms above. It's a nice building um, owned by an army captain, like I said, and rented out. By the, at this point, it's had additions added onto it. But you can see what's happening. You've got the two rooms, which are where Lawrence and Washington were. This is where Washington spent his time recovering from smallpox, sort of lying in bed in a room in this house. Um, but you can see the additions going on and the way it's already sort of changing how the building is oriented. The next time we see it, Excuse me, it's even more confusing because this is it. I, I don't know. I don't know what to tell you. Sorry. You know, I, I don't know. It's, I'm not really sure what's going on here. But um, but the garrison's over there, and we're sort of getting a little glimpse of it. But it's clearly the person drew it, drawing it was sort of like, I don't know. It's, it's got a bunch of rectangles. When Colonial Williamsburg did its study of it in 1999, we start to get some clarity as to what it looks like. And um, 
this shows the original core. Notice that it has sellers, uh, the original core, and additions put on. And what's happened, and this shows a piazza on the front. So what's happened now is the original core that faced that way to the north, which would look toward, you're, you're up on a slight ridge, so you'd be looking across ground toward Bridgetown. So you'd see the spires of Bridgetown, and you'd be looking out at Carlisle Bay, and you'd see all the ships, all the naval frigates in, in the bay. Now it's reoriented and turned around so that it's facing this way. Its back is now toward the water. And so this is the front now. So see, it's very, very confusing. The, the additions have sort of changed it. So when it was acquired by the Bush Hill Trust, or the Barbados Historical Trust first and the Bush Hill Trust, when they acquired it, it had been owned by the, the gas company, the electric company had owned it. It was a utility. It was, so they were storing trucks in the lot. And none of this is meant as pejorative. There are many of these buildings. Barbados has many, many 18th century buildings. They're built of this sort of cut stone, cut coral stone. They stand up very well, but they're hard to maintain. They're hard to, you know, they're hard to be comfortable in. And so they use them, but they're just, they're, they're not seen necessarily as terribly, you know, unique. They're all over the place. Um, and a lot of them end up in municipal functions. So uh, the Barbados Historical Trust is in one, for example. You can, you can find them being used that way. And there are some that are residences. Uh, a lot of them are farm buildings. I saw many that were just used for storage of farm equipment. Um, some are damaged as well. Some are in bad shape. And once they're damaged, nobody really has the money to fix them because it's expensive. And Barbados is, you know, it's it's not as wealthy as one might think, but land is very valuable and it's, you know, it's a complicated place. But um, so the whole building is reoriented uh, and it, it serves this different purpose. So the trust acquired it and Washington was not that powerful a figure in their story, but they do have their own story of Washington. And I talk about it in the book. I don't want to tell you about it now. You have to read it in the book because it takes a very interesting turn. But I, I, I see a validity in their Washington, and I kind of want to honor their understanding of, of George because they're the only other country that has an 18th century organic relationship with Washington. Everybody else has only the Washington, the icon. But he was in Barbados, but they, they have a Washington and they have their own sets of stories and they are, they are a black Republic. And I say Republic now because they recently left the Commonwealth and became a Republic. When I was there last, it was the election that was going to bring in, brought in Mia Motley, who's now the prime minister. But, um, the, one of the primary discussions was to be a Republic or to be part of the Commonwealth. And I talked about this at length, everybody I met, the conversation wound around to whether people wanted to be, uh, Part of the uh, part of the Commonwealth or part of the uh, or, or an independent republic. And they looked at Trinidad, who they feel very close to, and see Trinidad as a republic, and say some people arguing they should be a republic. I talked with one of the person I met at Drax Hall, who's in the sugar business, who said rather charmingly he'd rather still be in an empire. <laughs> he, he was cool with the empire because, and he made a very good point. It's like he has to sell sugar on the open market, and that's a difficult thing. He'd rather be part of the empire and be guaranteed a British market instead of Britons buying beet sugar from Poland, which is through the EU, which is what he was confronting. So we'll see how Brexit affected his sugar market. Maybe maybe he got a version of what he wanted. But Barbados is now a republic. And uh, it has its own stories. And so the big political fight there, their big debate over statues, um, has been about Nelson, because there's a statue of Nelson downtown. And, and Nelson, there were people who opposed the Washington uh, home as a, as a project, didn't want public money going to it, because why honor a slaveholder? That was the argument they made in, in 1999, in that period, early, you know, about 2000. Why honor a slaveholder? We're a free country now. Why should we honor a slaveholder? And there was the other argument that this is he's an important global figure. Part of the freedom of us as a, 
as a commonwealth, certainly now as a republic, uh, they could argue is is due to Washington. Washington plays some role in our political genealogy. And also, quite importantly, Barbados has increasingly been looking away from Britain and more toward the United States. Uh, British uh, Barbadian currency is pegged to the dollar. Um, it's 50 cents on the dollar, so every Barbadian dollar is 50 cents, but they'll take American money. Um, so it, it's a... It, it, Honoring Washington in some ways is part of a larger shift in looking northward uh, rather than eastward. And it made some sense in that context. But again, people had their objections. You could defend the choice of Washington over Nelson on simple grounds. The argument for Nelson was that people had erected a statue to him after Trafalgar and after you know, the argument being that by defeating the French fleet, he had saved Barbados from being taken over by France, which is arguably true. But Nelson visited Barbados and didn't like it. He spent, he was there for 24 hours. He stayed on his ship. He never came ashore. He looked at it off. He looked at Bridgetown off the side of his ship and said it was pestilential and, and ugly and wanted nothing to do with it. And then sailed away. So so that was then people brought that up. They said, well, Nelson didn't like Barbados. Why should we be interested in celebrating someone who hated Barbados? Whereas Washington loved Barbados. I mean, he is full of enthusiasm in his journal. He didn't want to marry a woman from Barbados. And that becomes clear in the writing because he's is a wealthy guy who's showing up and walking right into the homes of the wealthiest families. I mean, he's brought in, he's, he, they get there because of a Fairfax connection. Gedney Clark is married to, Gedney Clark's sister is married to Fairfax in Virginia. So like, these are well-connected people. So he walks right into a really wealthy home. And they're, they're trotting him around. You know, he's 19 years old and, you know, they're, they're, everybody's scrubbing up their eligible daughters and, you know, perfuming them and pushing them in front of these wealthy guys. You know, maybe, maybe there'll be a marriage here. And he's not interested in them. And he talks about how, he says that they, he doesn't like the way they speak. They sound too much like they're enslaved people. So it's a really interesting, complicated, nuanced observation that people point to as sort of the beginning of a West Indian accent. Um, but he's not interested in them. So, you know, but, but he's thinking about it. It's on his mind. And that's, that fixes in the mind, the collective mind of Barbados and becomes part of their story of George, which I talk about in the book. Um, so, you know, that imprint, obviously having, you know, the slavery is an issue. And I had the honor of uh, bringing Carl Watson on a tour of Mount Vernon a few years ago. He was doing a talk. We were part of the symposium. Carl Watson's sort of the preeminent historian of Barbados. And he brought his sister with him, very nice woman. And his sister was clearly bored during the symposium. She was like, you know, she's, so I, I, and I didn't want to hear all the talks. So I said, well, let's go, let's go take a look at the site. So we took a walk around, you know, nice folks. I like them. Carl Watson's been very solicitous and helpful in dealing with Barbados. Let's, let's help his sister out when she looks a little bored. So we looked at some different things, talked about them. We went back and went in the house. Washington kept a couple pieces of coral that he acquired in Barbados. Now, that's kind of remarkable. He kept them his entire life. You don't do that if you don't feel a connection with a place. And one of those pieces of coral was in Mount Vernon. And it was a wonderful moment for me when I brought Carl Watson into that space, but sort of behind the red rope, right? We're able to take a look at this. And there's this piece of Barbadian coral. And here's like the preeminent historian of Barbados. And it's kind of a wonderful, you know, synergy. He understood the implication, understood the symbolism. So, you know, the, the, uh, this person from Barbados looking at this object from Barbados in, in Washington's home. So it's a, it was a fun connection. When you go inside the home, and he's been very much involved in this reconstruction and this rebuild. When you go inside the home, this is the main space, and this is, this is the inside of those two rooms. So looking as the, this is sort of, that's north and this is west, this is the, the westward room, which is the room we think Washington was in when he had smallpox. So this, is the, this room then is commemorated this way. This is set up for a dinner. Um, 
which is one of the things they do to raise funds. They have these large dinners there. But you can go to this site. You should go. Barbados is wonderful. Um, and just people are amazing. It's a great place. Uh, but this is what you see, and this is interpreted as, as the main space. So this is what you do when you, have, when you have a building that has changed so much. You kind of find a way to carve out of it uh, the thing that makes sense. Let's look at the fourth one, which is rebuilding as a symbol. What do you do when you're not going to rebuild at all? When you want something that's symbolic, something that sort of captures, captures the idea of there being a building, but in practice, you can't actually do it. And the president's home in Philadelphia is a perfect example. Some of you might have seen these. Yes, ghost frames. Um, St. Mary's City in Maryland uses them extensively. And what they do is mark the site of a building. There isn't the resources, they don't have the resources to be able to build a full reconstruction or maybe the desire or the information, depending on the situation. But you wanna mark, you wanna create the impression on the landscape of there having been lots of buildings. So this is a quick and uh, fairly cost-effective answer to create something. Um, it, they're tricky, they're, they, they're, people sometimes are confused by them, they need some interpretation. They're, although they, uh, use my language carefully, although they stand alone, they don't stand alone, right? They, you know, they, they, somebody needs to explain what's going on with these. Um, but they've been around for a while. One of the earliest is the one at the Ben Franklin House uh, in Philadelphia, designed by Robert Venturi. This went up in 1976, this one is metal. And obviously Franklin's home is in a part of Philadelphia that has been built over extensively. You can't simply put an 18th century building there. Um, it's a little park area. So this was a solution born out of a very simple necessity, the desire to commemorate Franklin's home, but uh, do it in a way that wouldn't sort of plop a home down where one couldn't be. So this is sort of a symbolic reconstruction, right, that captures the notion of there having been something. Well, the president's home didn't survive. It, it didn't, Washington was only, the, well, he was there for his presidency for much of it. Obviously, the first two years were in New York, but the first few months really, but um, you know, the early phase, but then they moved to Philadelphia. They were building a home for the president, uh, but neither he nor Adams liked it and it, it didn't really it didn't really stick. So instead he, he rented a home from Robert Morris uh, and lived in it and that was his main area. And I write about it um, in the book. It's, we go back to the same problem. What did the building look like? You know, what, what do we know about it? And that's, that's a tricky thing. Now, we do have some drawings of it, um, but very little from the time period because it was just one of many homes in Philadelphia. Nobody really saw it as being special. It had a distinctive history. It's, you know, we're not going to spend too much time on it, but it, um, it, it, it suffered. <laughs> Maybe it's a way to say it. It, uh, it, it didn't have an easy life. It, it was burned. It had to be rebuilt. It changes hands over and over again. It goes through a number of different owners till Robert Morris finally owns it. And then when he owns it, he rebuilds it. Uh, I think he's there for a little while, but then he rents it out to Washington. Washington had seen it during the, uh, during the Constitutional Convention, sort of, or sorry, during the, um, yeah, during the Constitutional Convention, it was sort of like liked it. So, and he trusts Morris and they have a whole correspondence. One of the things that emerges in that correspondence is very important for the story of the president's home is that Washington is concerned about what's going to happen to enslaved people in Philadelphia. Pennsylvania has a manumission law. Enslaved people are, have to be registered. There, there's a grandfathering clause, but they have to be registered. And if they're brought, if enslaved people are brought in, they have to be given manumission after six months. So Washington was concerned about what this would mean. And there was an incident that happened, a court case that happened with a man from Alexandria who had his enslaved people taken from him by Quakers in Philadelphia. And he was infuriated and wrote, uh, wrote a screed that was posted on walls in Alexandria. It was written in the Virginia Gazette and then it was printed out. And Washington got a hold of this and was like, what is this? So he's making these arrangements to go live in Philadelphia. And he writes to Morris, he's like, what, what's this? What's gonna happen when I get to Philadelphia? 
And there's a real concern about this. So this is in his mind. He's thinking about what's going to happen to enslaved people once he gets to a place uh, where slavery is not really the law, very much on his mind. And that bears on what happens to the home. That's what I talk about in my chapter in the book. But we have these drawings that give us a bit of an idea. We have some lot prints, so we get a sense of what the lot looks like. This is when uh, this is when the house was burned. Edward Lawler is a, a, a local historian of Philadelphia who did extensive work on this in the early 2000s, wrote two great articles in, in the uh, Pennsylvania Magazine of History, and um, really outlined... Did, did wonderful work pulling this together, and we, we all owe him a great debt for that. Um, but this is one of the maps that shows the lot. So Washington's going to be living on this lot. We have a later drawing that shows uh, the front of the building right before it gets demolished. Now, if you've been to Philadelphia, if you know this area, it's fifth between 5th and 6th on Market Street, what was called High Street then. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a busy area, and it doesn't look at all as it did in the 18th century. So this area is un, going to undergo a radical transformation. So, And the building had already undergone several changes. It had become a store. I think there's like a manufactory there for a while, like inside the 18th century building. So it, it's got an interesting life. And then it finally is demolished so that by the time we get to the second half of the 19th century, it looks like this. And the, the blue arrow is pointing to the lot that Washington lived on. So there's nothing now resembling the 18th century. It, it's all gone to the point where we can look at photographs uh, you know, from the early 20th century. This is the lot of the president's house. So if you go back here, that view and this view are the same. So extensive rebuilding, a radical rethinking of what that space is and what that space can do. Um, the Park Service transformed it. The Park Service got rid of these buildings around the time of the bicentennial and replaced it um, with, with sort of an open area. And then there was the plan to rebuild the Liberty Bell Center. Some of you might have been there and seen it, this sort of new building for, for the Liberty Bell. And that's a wonderful project. And, um, but the problem is that it involved building on the site of the president's home. And the local community in Philadelphia said, well, this was a site of enslavement. And there was real resistance to building a shrine to the Liberty Bell, itself associated with abolition, um, on top of the site of enslavement. There was real sensitivity around this. And community groups came together and started protesting and making arguments that this shouldn't happen. So the Park Service found themselves in a sort of awkward position, wanting to do this new rebuild, but also finding themselves against the community and, and running right up against this issue of slavery. And the, the imagery, the idea of the the Liberty Plaza sitting on top of a site of slavery was just nobody could get past that. That's just like that's just you know you, you can't make these things up, right? This is like that's you know it's great stuff. So that's just a really resonant image, and, and it stuck with people. So they had to then decide what to do and how do you do this? Now I want to say one one or two things about slavery in Philadelphia at this time. Um, Washington, as he's planning. The president's home where he's going to reside as i mentioned before is sort of concerned about this he knows that he's going to be creating what i call sort of an island of slavery inside of this city that opposes slavery he knows that there are a lot of people who oppose slavery around him and then they have a lot of power they control the government in many ways and where they don't control the government they're extremely influential the courts side with freed slaves in in these cases so there's a very strong force that wants to wants to manumit there also is a long period of labor dispute happening in Philadelphia at this time. There's like a three-year labor dispute. 
at the time that Washington arrives. So the working classes of Philadelphia have a real sense of their power. And even though it's the 90s, there still is a very strong echo of revolutionary sentiment. So some of the rhetoric that you see in the immediate aftermath of the revolution um, still lingers in these working class communities very powerfully. So that's what he's walking into. There could be nothing more alien from, for you know, the, the master of Mount Vernon, you know, who controls everything he can see, who situates his office when he rebuilds, when he adds on to Mount Vernon, situates his office right above where slave people are and slave people are working. So they're right underneath him. So he can he sees everything. He has is this uh, omniscient, as it were, you know, sort of you know this eye kind of watching everything. He can see his way around, and everything is reversed when he goes to Philadelphia. It's all enclosed now. His the only place he can control is this tiny little urban square rectangle. Um, and yet he needs to make changes, so he orders the building of what he calls a servant's quarters. That servant's quarter, I've, I've counted it out and done the measurements, that servant's quarter is the same dimensions as the new slave quarters that he was building in Mount Vernon in the same period. So the two things are happening at the same time. So he's clearly looking at his domestic architecture, the domestic architecture of the plantation, and bringing pieces of it into Philadelphia where, where it's alien and unfamiliar. He makes a series of changes in the land too that are really interesting. I'm going to get to those when I, I, I'm show you another map. But the way he rethinks that land, uh, that little plot, these land, I'm used to thinking in rural terms, that little plot is really quite dramatic and speaks very much to how slavery and social dynamics are functioning in this little island. The Park Service, when, when I was going to work with their artifacts, what the rangers there told me, and they're great folks and they did great work, but they said there were no artifacts that linked directly to the Washington occupancy. And they're right, there, there aren't. There are things that occupy, there, there are objects that exist in that period, but they don't necessarily tie to the Washington occupancy. So they, the interpretation doesn't focus on the Washington, on, on much to do with, with Washington itself. The occupant, the, the, what you'll see when I show you the photographs a bit, the interpretation focuses more on the enslaved people there um, because rather famously Ona Judge, who was a maid of the family, managed to steal her freedom during this time period and walked, she could walk out the door into a world that was ready to, to sort of help her. And she, there are associations in the free black community, there's labor unrest, there's a whole world of disruption going on. And the, the enslaved people that Washington brought from Virginia were not unaware of this and she makes use of it. She's able to sort of you know, claim her freedom by simply walking away into a network that, that eventually got her up to New Hampshire. And there's a whole letter correspondence you could read about it that many of you know about already. So that happens. There also is this, uh, the, the enslaved cook named Hercules, who was a bit of a celebrity in his day, was working here. Uh, he ultimately ran away, but not from here. Um, he claimed his freedom back from Mount Vernon. But uh, what the Washingtons were doing was keeping people for short of the six months and then sending them back to Mount Vernon so they'd effectively start the clock again. It's an odd move. It's, it's obviously, and people see it as mean-spirited and understandably why, but it's an odd move in some ways to my mind because all you have to do is send them to a place where slavery is legal, which in this moment is New Jersey. So like kind of all he had to do was like, you know, get them across the Delaware, something he was familiar with, and, um, and then they're like, back in enslaved territory. So it's interesting they go back to Mount Vernon. So it's, it, there's a, something kind of complicated is happening in his thinking. It's not as simple as get them back to, uh, uh, to where they're enslaved to start the clock again, although that is exactly what he's doing. 
why does New Jersey not factor in? I, I find that interesting. That, that, you know, never really come up with a good explanation for that. But, but these things are complicated. Um, and he's thinking about this a lot, as I say, when he does this. So when it comes time to excavate, they open up the ground, and it's a nightmare from an archaeological standpoint. You could tell from the photograph I saw you that, like, this is not going to be a fun site to excavate. This is, you know, th this is not going to be fun. And you will be very lucky to find 18th century remnants in this. There's just going to be a lot of later stuff. And, and, and I mean stuff, not just, not just objects, but architecture, bricks. So when they open it up, that's indeed what happens. You can see, I got this image from the Park Service. I'm grateful to them for this. It's a great image of the excavation. It's, it's so difficult. And the archaeologists who did this, you know, I can't say enough about the skill that goes into doing this. This is, this is such, I know it looks messy in its way. It's not. It's, they're dealing with an incredibly difficult situation. Plus, they were digging it with a measure of protest, right? People were watching them and were concerned about it. Incredibly high-skilled excavation to get this. And frustrating because the site itself is so complicated. But you can see the 19th century walls, but there are little pieces, little pieces here and there. They ultimately build the Liberty Bell Plaza, right? They build the new, the new building. They can't rebuild because there's, it's not what, they're, not what the plan is, not what people want. So what they build is a partial reconstruction. They build an invocation of the home. If you're not pleased with it, don't worry. There are a lot of people that are not pleased with it. There's a, there are a lot of people that, that find this to be a very strange reconstruction. But it's in the tradition of these partial reconstructions. There was one out in Wilson hometown. There's the, there are the uh, uh, ghost frames. And... Although it focuses on slavery, that's its main topic, focusing on people like Ona Judge and Hercules and the, the life of the enslaved in this little island of slavery in this Republic of Freedom, right? It's, it, those contradictions are very much part of, if they're contradictions, right? If they're not symbiotic. Um, but those issues, the, the interplay of slavery and freedom is very much what the interpretation at this site is dedicated to. And the architecture is sort of ancillary. The, the, it's it's a platform. It's not meant to do more than just sort of mark it out as a separate place. But there's a, there's something important to know here. This is, I'll show you another photograph of looking down. So when you go, there's a glass enclosure, and you look down onto the footers. And you can see here, again, it's really difficult. It's difficult when you're there. Imagine trying to just look at a photograph. Well, I don't have to tell you to imagine looking at a photograph. You're looking at a photograph. The uh, this is a window that Washington had added. It's called the bow window, and he has it added on the back, and there's all sorts of stuff about how it, it, it becomes part of the presidency. It's, it's you know, the beginning of the Oval Office in some people's eyes. It's this very important architectural addition. And there it is in this reconstructed model, and there is the footer for it in the ground against the 19th century wall. So this is 19th century, but there is an 18th century fragment. And Here's another piece of, uh, there we have one of the walls, and there's, right there, that's an 18th century wall, right there. So we've got, do we see the bow in here? I don't think we do. The bow is over in here and there. So we're looking down into this area. Now let me show you a map, and then I'll make my point. We're looking at this area, right there, from the house to the yard to the, the woodlot there is sort of sealed off. There's a passageway there. There's possibly an underground passageway there. Washington put his office right here, right above the baking, right, right above the, the bathing room, right there. This is the servants' hall he had built. So on the second floor, he pitches his office, not in the main home. So his special private place is right up there. Would I argue, looking at this lot and understanding the movement, and look at the correspondence, because uh, 
He's very concerned. He uh, is writing back and forth about where things are going to be stored. This back door becomes an area of great concern. There's a worry that people can take things from inside the, the work areas, silver plate, stuff like that, teapots, and just walk out with them. This idea of just walking out, it's just alien to, to Washington. It's just, it's a, he's aware that just beyond this wall is this whole world that he barely understands. So he's very concerned about this. And it's not lost on me that he puts his office right at the bottleneck. So I see this area as being the most consequential area of the site, the most important part of the lot, because this is the social interpoint. This is where the outside joins the inside. And this is, this is the flex point. And Washington puts himself in a position of surveillance right above it, just being able to look down at it any time. Anybody moving through there knows that, that the president could be up in his office, could be right up there. So this movement becomes a really, this area becomes really significant. When you go back to the site, it's not called attention to, we'll see if we could change that, but you look down as a visitor on exactly that site. You're seeing what I argue is the most important part of that home lot, that area, or you're seeing the footers of it, obviously, right, architecturally. Uh, the ground level is the same now as it was then, but you're seeing the physical remains of that social point, that interpoint between uh, labor and, and the domestic environment and a place that was Washington, Washington was deeply concerned about and positioned himself right above. So when you look at it, it's like I say, there's a lot of, a lot of different views of a lot of different opinions, but what do you do with symbol? How can you, how can you work with symbol? I think the park service has pushed the idea of symbol further than most people had before. So I think we end up with something very interesting uh, and, and a fascinating platform. So I'll stop there. Obviously, a lot of people to thank. I've gotten in the habit of, of these thank you slides. It's a, kind of a good way to quickly thank so many people who went into making this work possible. This stuff is always collaborative and so many people contribute by giving me access to collections and so on and so on. So let me stop there. I got through my four. It took a little long, but I got through my four. Um, there's a microphone so I can take questions and I think we have time for those. So. Please feel free to ask me anything on this theme you're interested in, or let me let me know what uh, you want to know that I didn't address. As the microphone will make its way around. Oh yeah, you can clap. Sure. <laughs> so, are there questions? if there aren't. I just want to make sure. Is there? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. What year was, uh, was he in Barbados? 1751. It's just it's just for the, the winter of 1751. From, I think, September until December. So it's a short time, but it's the only time he left the continental United States. He travels, obviously, extensively within the continental United States or within, you know, up and down the coast. Um, but it's the only time he left the country, the only time he did a sea voyage. So uh, it had a big impact on him. And then there's a smallpox issue. Smallpox, let me just say one thing about smallpox, that smallpox does not lead to sterility. Um, it, it, it's said that way. People will talk about he got smallpox and that's why he has no children. Well, it's not as simple as that. Smallpox can create the conditions that can lead to sterility because of a fever, but any intense fever can do that. And that's part of what happens with smallpox. So we can't say that the variola itself is responsible for infertility. Uh, it is often said that way. That matters quite a bit in Barbados. Matters quite a bit because there are lots of stories about what he was doing before he had smallpox. 
and there is a whole world of people on Barbados, not, you know, too many, I don't want to exaggerate it. There are people who imagine an ancestry and they might be right. We don't know. We don't know. But, but it is very much part of what Barbados says about their version of George. Go ahead. Sorry. His office on the second floor, did he have windows that looked down on that? Now, okay, we don't area? know, right? Um, it, he's not going to build a room without windows, right? He's, he's, I'm going to make a box and I'm going to stay in the box. It, it, it's, you'd have to have windows because you need light and, and you need air, and that's how that works. Um, so there's, it's a bathing house. It's very complicated when, when you start to get into, you know, uh, Tobias Lear and him writing back and forth and writing to Robert Morris and figuring out like what changes they want to make. And there's a, the, there's a bathhouse. And there's a, Morris, Morris has a bathhouse. Let's just start with that. Now, you know, the, let's just go right there. That's an interesting thing in and of itself. Um, he's got an ice house in the back, but he's got baths and the baths have a fireplace that heats them. And George looks at this and says, I don't need this stuff. So, so it kind of goes away, and that space becomes the office. So it was already built, but he changes, he changes, its, it changes what it was and how it functions. But I, I think it had to have had windows, otherwise there, it, it wouldn't be a space that he would have considered being in. Windows are essential, because that, that's where light's going to come from during the day. Sure. God, you are right in the darkest part of the room. How did you manage that? Hi, I think you said the office was over at the uh, bakery. So wouldn't it be nice and warm with all that heat rising? Yeah, it's and there's a, there's a there's a wall there, so there's a fire on one side. Radiating heat is absolutely part of it. And and if you're gonna, you know, if you're gonna have a lot of paper, you'd rather have radiating heat than than an open fire. So, yeah, it's a strange thing. And and again, they go back and forth. And you know, a lot of it's really unclear. I shouldn't create. There's there's always an element of interpretation in this because they don't stop and kind of look at you, look at us, the contemporary historical reader, and say, let me, let me explain what I'm doing here, what, what I'm going for, right? They, they don't do that. They just, they just make demands, and we only have the records that survive. So there's parts of correspondences that aren't there. There are issues. We know of issues because we see them referred to in letters, but the letter doesn't exist. One of the things that's nice when you look at the annotated papers of somebody prominent, the Washington Papers, for example, that UVA publishes, if you read some of those, they're online, they're very easy to get a hold of now, read the, read the annotations, read the notes for each letter, because what they did, what their skill, their time working with that collection, lets them say, all right, this comment refers to this other letter, or this, the letter he's referring to is one that we don't have. So they're able to sort of fill the gaps in, at least that way. So. There's a lot of imprecision for this. Like I say, Lawler did a very good job sort of putting together some of this stuff, and he creates the basis that we work off of. But it's very good reads of evidence. It's just that, you know, I would love to see these things. I mean, one of the things we always have said with archaeology sites, back when I was in grad school working on a 17th century site, we always used to say that, you know, one hour here with, like, with, with a camera and a pad and a pen, and I would know more about this place than, than I'll know in 15 years of excavation. You know, it's just, that's that's just the way it works. We only, we're working with shadows. Are there more? All right. Well, if we're done, thank you very much. I'll see you outside, and thanks for coming out. <laughs>